We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It's an interesting number that at certain levels should be a wake-up call for all of us. Last five years, nearly one out of every two U.S. nursing homes were cited for a variety of violations, most of them having to do with neglect or mistreatment. And you say to yourself, well, I'm sure glad that's not me. Well, (laughs) if you're a baby boomer born between 1946 and 1964, and there are 80 million of us, 1,000 a day reach retirement, our time is coming. What's the old phrase? You'll reap what you sow. These conditions that we're seeing in nursing home facilities across America today, again, nearly half of them have been cited for violations of neglect and mistreatment. Someday we may be calling those places home. So being aware of what's going on is critically important. And quite frankly, as we've seen in the news in the last week with the arrest of these two monsters... David and Louise Chirpin, and the child abuse that they were systematically involved in against their own flesh and blood, 13 kids overall, points to the fact that there are issues at each end of the spectrum. We're going to spend some time today helping to answer the question, who's looking out for America's abandoned, abused, neglected children and elderly? That's the question raised, too, in the pages of a new book called Guardianship Reality. And joining me is the co-author of this new book. He is a healthcare ethics consultant, has worked as a professional guardian, and joins us now to discuss the content. Fernando Gutierrez, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you very much, Greg. Happy to be on your show. You know, they ought to be very alarming numbers, particularly, as I say, for those of us that are baby boomers, realizing that on average, according to the statistics we've seen so far, one out of every two of us will wind up spending at least some time in a elder care facility, be that independent living or assisted living or skilled nursing facility. And given the fact that uh, one out of every two facilities has been cited for some level of violation of of neglect or mistreatment ought to be very alarming for everyone. It is, and the sad outlook is that, and you hit it on the nose, the baby boomers, there will not be enough, in my opinion, enough clinicians to help us once we get older, especially those of us who are going to have some serious health issues. And, of course, you know, if we've watched the challenges of parents or grandparents growing older, we realize that the the potential for not only problems but abuse is uh, pretty pretty significant. And as your book, um, co-authored with Robert Fertig, points out, it really is at both ends of the spectrum, isn't it, in terms of age? It is, and I'm excited about the book that I co-author with Robert Fertig because not only do we tell our readers what to look out for, we actually tell them how to handle 
the issues that um, need to be asked and the questions actually that need to be asked. In terms of the real target audience here, um, who, who is the real person that benefits the most from a book like this? I would say it's the patient advocate because they are the ones who have to do all the homework. Uh, once uh, someone gets into a nursing home, uh, they usually have some type of medical condition that limits their uh, maybe cognitive issues or mobility. And so they don't have the time or the effort to really uh, fight the fight, if I should say that. So it, 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 it falls on the shoulders of the patient advocate, whether that be a, a son, daughter, or uncle, aunt, or just simply a, a professional guardian who's looking out for the best interest. And, you know, this is, as you allude to, a real potential minefield here because the layers of complexity, not only in terms of methodology and the needs and, and you know, you get into these multifacets where it's not just caring for their physical well-being, it's caring for their emotional well-being, it's caring for their mental well-being, it's caring for their financial well-being. And then you add the layers of um, uh, regulations and laws uh, suddenly you find out that uh, if you find yourself placed in a position where you're taking on a guardianship or forced into a position where you have to take on a guardianship in order to care for a loved one, this is no easy task by any stretch of the imagination, is it? It's not. The factor is, is that um, it's an emotional issue, especially when you're dealing with a loved one. Yet society and each facilities wants you to make an informed, practical decision. And as human beings, we all know that emotions will always rule, overrule any type of rational decision-making. This is very true. And um, let, let's, let's get in then to some real specific details here. First, how did you first get involved in becoming a professional guardian? What happened was is that I had a nephew who was born with a seizure disorder. And I took it upon myself to educate myself as to medical terminology and medical protocol. And so when I went with my sister to these um, neurologists, I would question these um, white coats, white jackets, and say, hey, how about this treatment or what about another treatment? And I actually had one neurologist who said, I wish every parent was like you. And like anything else, if we were going to buy a new car, most people will spend more time researching the new car they're going to get than rather than looking out either for their own medical welfare or those of a loved one. And, you know, again, as we, we look at everything from uh, issues of children that are developmentally disabled or physically disabled that need a higher degree of, of care and attention, uh, there's also this big realm out there of individuals that are, on one hand, concerned and willing to provide care and look out for what's best for their loved one. Um, but there are also people that are ready and willing and lined up to take advantage of them, aren't they? Yes, there is. There's, um, fortunately, there's both sides of the spectrum. And if we mentioned it, and I've had experience, sometimes it's not a, a family member who's the best patient advocate. Sometimes you actually have to hire someone privately if it's possible or get someone outside of the family to be that patient advocate who has that objective viewpoint and it's not held down by any emotional um, values or um, issues that 
were in the past years. Yeah, for example, some of the issues that I've been concerned with, uh, with uh, some of the new California laws, including physician-assisted suicide, and that is where, where do we draw the line between um, an individual who solely advocates for the best interest of the patient when that same individual potentially may uh, have benefits should that patient pass away? In other words, they are either a, a heir or um, have some financial gain should that individual pass away? And so now suddenly there's that big question of, well, in whose best interest are you really acting? It becomes a real ethical dilemma, doesn't it? It does, and I've experienced that many, many times. In fact, I've had um, patients that I followed that after they've passed away, the first question from a relative was, how much money did they leave? Mm-hmm. Not, how was mom or dad? Yeah, it, it's the sad reality, I think, of our society and our culture today, and as we've seen in stories of the Turpins and, and other cases when it comes to elder abuse, sadly, the level of of attention, respect, and protection from a societal standpoint that these two potentially um, uh, delicate, fragile ends of the of the spectrum in life here in America, the, 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 the lack of total respect that they receive in our culture today is very alarming, and as I suggested in my opening remarks, ought to capture the attention of all of us. It's one thing to say, gee, I'm sure glad mom or dad is not in a retirement facility they're uh, receiving abuse from. Well, what happens when it's your turn? And what if your kids are not as kind to to you as you are to your parents? Don't think for a moment it can't happen, because as we're learning today from Fernando Gutierrez, it happens all the time. There are some challenges. There are also wonderful opportunities to do some good things in guardianship. We're going to talk more about what exactly guardianship is at both ends of the spectrum as our conversation with healthcare ethics consultant Fernando Gutierrez continues a look at guardianship reality. Who's looking out for America's abandoned, abused, neglected children and elderly? Back to more of our discussion right after this. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, we are back on our visit today with Fernando Gutierrez, co-author of a new book called Guardianship Reality, Who's Looking Out for America's Abandoned, Abused, Neglected Children and Elderly? All right, when we talk about guardian position, uh, it's not only a list of of responsibilities and duties, but it's also a, a legal definition, is it not, Fernando? It is. What you have is you have court oversight over not only um, health care services, but also the financial end of it. And there, there's really a couple of things at play here. Um, it, it provides that, as you say, court oversight to make sure that this individual is taking a proactive responsible position in looking after the well-being of whoever the person is, be it a child or a senior adult. So there is a system of checks and balances in that regard. Um, And people sometimes say, well, you know, I don't like the way my sister's looking after mom, so I'm going to have to go in and get guardianship. It's a lot more involved than that, though, isn't it? It's going to be a very, not only complicated matter in terms of the level of responsibility, but there's a lot of legal twists and turns in this, too, isn't there? There is, and there's lots of expense. As a uh, registered guardian in the state of Florida, I always tell potential um, 
family members to try to avoid guardianship because there are court fees, there are attorney fees, and if you want to move your mom to another facility, you have to get permission from the courts. It is a last resort, and again, as a registered guardian, I I am not a fan of it unless it's the only option, and it should be the last option. Well, let's talk about when it becomes an option. Let's assume for the sake of discussion that those that are eardropping or, or, or um, eavesdropping, rather, on our conversation today are ones that have a point of concern. And let's delineate here. This is not just a matter of a simple difference of opinion. In other words, uh, you think that your mother ought to be in a home care facility in the north end of town because it's convenient to where you live, and your sister thinks that she ought to be in the south end of town because it's closer to where she lives. We're not talking about that. We're we're talking about a profile of, of an individual. Uh, it may be a um, close family member or a clo- close friend of the family, rather, or a family member that has concerns about the the overall well-being of either a child or an adult that may potentially need court involvement. How do you decide whether or not this is something that even comes into play? What's the criteria where a court comes in and says a guardian, either within the family or a professional guardian like yourself, needs to be appointed? Usually, in my experience, if you have siblings that are not in concert and working together, all it takes is one of the siblings to tell the judge, as you mentioned before, I'm, I don't, you know, trust my sister, or I think my brother should put her in another place. And the court doesn't like confusion. They don't like disputes. And that's why they'll bring in a third-party professional guardian who's basically a referee. But usually the case is, is that family members just can't get along and if they could get along, then we wouldn't even need the guardianship courts. But the fact is, is that there's too many siblings out there that are have motives. It could be a money motive. It could be that they were never maybe loved by mother, and now they're getting back at mother, or they always hated their sister. It could be so many factors that are involved. And it's sad to say is that the ultimate loser is the loved one who has the need to go into a nursing home. Now, clearly, this is a different scenario for minor children than it is adults. Is there another piece of wisdom behind all of this, Fernando, in terms of then while we are still healthy, while we are capable physically and most importantly mentally to make decisions for ourselves that we need to take the necessary steps in order to in some way uh, provide for our care when the time comes that we can't care for ourselves. And of course, this goes to things like a durable power of attorney for health care. It goes to things like having um, a living will in place. And and I suppose then two directives as well in terms of um, what you want in maybe a uh, a DNR or what you don't want or uh, the the level and, and quality of, of care that you you would like should the time come that you can no longer make your, your those decisions for yourself? Is that stuff that we really need to be? And I know a lot of folks, gee, they don't even want to think about their own burial, let alone thinking about having to live incapacitated as uh, an adult with maybe uh, Alzheimer's or dementia. But I guess that's a reality we really need to be thinking of while we can, isn't it? It is. And it's not necessarily that your son or daughter would be that best person to fill that patient advocate. And that's what I call 
guardians, patient advocates. And so you have to do your homework. It has to be somebody with a strong personality, one that's um, persistent, one that is demanding. And not all people have that personality. And I always tell um, others and prospective family members that if you're not upsetting a doctor, a facility, the pharmacy, you're not doing your job because your number one job is to advocate for that patient, mother or father, whoever it is. And guess what? You will gain enemies because of that advocacy because nobody's going to do it unless you do it. This is extremely true. And so toward that end, just based on your experience, what you've seen go on in families, the kind of abuse that has come to your attention through your position, walk me through, and obviously we're not going to get through every aspect of what's covered uh, in great detail in the book, but if you had to come up off the top of your head, uh, Fernando, with, with maybe five or six top things that people need to be aware of, what would they be? Well, if you're looking for number one, um, there should be some type of family meeting that you can choose, first of all, the right persona person that has that persona in order to be persistent. And it may be someone outside of the family. And I have been appointed by uh, many senior citizens, and they've introduced me to their um, sons and daughters and say, hey, this is the person who I'm confident with and that can make those decisions and is independent. That's one of the most critical things is to have someone decide for you what's best for you and again it, it takes that different persona of that person and I, as I mentioned before even in the book sometimes uh, most people will pick either a family member but sometimes that family member is not the best choice and that's why we have these issues where family members steal from each other and then the courts get involved uh, a big mess but that's the most critical thing. You have to interview people, and you have to pick the right person. How do you go about picking that right person? And I ask that question because I've seen cases where uh, mom or dad has a favorite son or daughter, and while that might be the favorite son or daughter for whatever the reason, they may not necessarily be the most capable nor the most responsible. Yeah, what I, I say is um, when that time comes or when it's near that time is you have to uh, become knowledgeable. You have to do your homework. You know, go out and visit nursing homes, um, ask them, and and they will tell you, you know, how many guardians you have here or how many patient advocates that are not family members are helping the patients in your facility. And they're more than happy to always tell you, you know, we have this individual uh, you might want to call them and see if they'll meet your needs, but you would have to do your homework. And again, I, I I can't stress this more, is that when you are buying a car, you spend more time researching the type of automobile, but when it comes to someone's health or someone else's, it's like we just take it for granted and we just sometimes accept whatever the doctors or the facilities say, and that's why we're in the mess that we're in because we have to be more active. We have to be proactive. And sadly, a lot of times it just comes down to what's available, what's affordable. But what you're suggesting is that it, it really requires a, a lot more serious attention and questions. It is. And again, that emotional factor clouds so much of our rational decision-making. 
and it takes a really a sit-down meeting with the other siblings if you have other brothers or sisters and um, with the with the patient if they still have cognitive ability to just start this conversation but like um, death you know nobody wants to talk about it yet it's inevitable for all of us this book can essentially be a guidebook whether you find yourself in the guardianship position for a needy minor child or for an adult. Um, much of what is in here can walk you through not just the, the moral dilemmas, but also the legal minefield of guardianship. Uh, the new book, by the way, uh, published by Author House, and you can get information available and order online through the usual suspects, Amazon, or through ethics4healthcare.com. That's the number four, ethics 4 Healthcare. Com. Again, the book, Guardianship Reality, Who's Looking Out for America's Abandoned, Abused, Neglected Children, and Elderly, co-author Fernando Gutierrez. Fernando, thank you so much for the time and the insights today. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It's a topic that we've discussed before, um, some I think troubling statistics that ought to catch the attention of all of us within the organized church in America, and that is surveys. They've been done by a variety of groups. Probably the most recent, most reliable, in my opinion, is that done by uh, George Barna and his organization that finds that an alarming percentage of young people who um, grow up in church, attending Sunday school, they've been baptized there, they've uh, been active in children's church all through their young adult years, and then they reach their later teens, high school, largely collegiate level, and it seems that once they graduate from high school and move into college, they move into the dorms and out of the pews. And the question is why? What's going on in the lives of young people today where they feel perhaps that the church is not adequately addressing their needs? Well, a new book has been written that helps to address this very issue that takes a look at some key strategies that's not necessarily, you know, fancy entertainment programs, things of that sort, but rather an attempt to sort of um, take a look at the church and most specifically how we can do a better job at not only keeping young people in the church, but allowing church and most importantly Christianity at the core to be relevant in their lives. Joining me now is one of the co-authors of a new book called Growing Young, Six Essential Strategies to Help Young People Discover and Love Your Church. Jake Mulder, in addition to being co-author, is Director of Strategic Initiatives at Fuller Youth Institute. He is, by the way, a graduate of Fuller Theological Seminary and has also served as a ministry director with Youth for Christ and also with YWAM. And Jake, thanks so much for taking time to be with us today. Hey, thanks, Craig. It's good to be with you. When we uh, talk about solutions, of course, it, it helps to get a bit of a handle on ascertaining what the problem is. Uh, you know, everything from vacation Bible school, children's choir, youth church, all of this. Um, youth have always been a important component within the church, and I've also seen studies to suggest that uh, there's a greater likelihood of people continuing um, in their faith for 
the entire length of their life, um, the younger that they make that decision or commitment to Christ. So we know that youth outreach and ministry is critically important. And yet in recent years, there has been this trend, this trend of young people reaching a certain age and saying, okay, I'm no longer compelled to go by my parents. I no longer feel compelled. And they're done. Why? Yeah, exactly, Craig. In many ways, as you said, it's it's oftentimes, unfortunately, into the college dorm and out of the pews. And as you cited George Barna, the research from their organization often points to the fact that 40, 50 percent of those young people who grow up in the church end up drifting from God and the faith after they graduate from high school. Um, there's a lot of other negative statistics we could look at in a, regarding the church and where the church is at. Pew Research had released uh, some results recently where 78% of the U.S. adult population used to identify as Christian. Now that's 71%. We could look at other negative statistics like uh, 18 to 29-year-olds make up 20% of the U.S. population, but they actually make up only 10% of U.S. churchgoers. Uh, so as you indicated, lots of bad news. There's, there's a lot that we could point to of what's not working, but that's where we're so excited about this new research in the book, Growing Young, because we decided, what if we looked past the bad news? What if we looked beyond the problems and the struggles? And what if we actually studied churches that are thriving in their ministry to teenagers and young adults? And in doing so, um, and you've looked at churches across, uh, across the country, across denominational lines, you've looked at uh, churches that were mixed, churches that were uh, predominantly minority, churches that were predominantly white. Any trends that you see, any commonality with those churches that seem to be doing a quote-unquote better job at keeping or retaining young people? Yeah, very much. And before I mention a couple of those, one of the things I, I do want to mention were some of our surprises of what we thought we might find as a commonality that we, in fact, didn't find. So as we began the study, we wondered if we might find that churches that are large would be more effective with millennials, with teenagers and young adults, or maybe it's churches that have a big budget, or it's churches that have been recently planted, or it's churches that have just this off-the-charts cool quotient, or uh, they, you know, uh, their worship is like a rock concert, or they've got a laser light show and fog machines, or a hip, cool young pastor. And we can with confidence say from the churches that we've studied, uh, it was not about any of those single things that led to effectiveness with young people. Interesting. One of the things that strikes me about this, and I mentioned this in my introductory remarks that we used to do, historically a good job is the church in providing uh, places for young people. But I wonder if there's a degree to which maybe that has backfired on us. And I, I pose that question because um, one of the things certainly, and if we compare, for example, young people that get involved in gangs— yeah. Uh, typically, what do we see? We see young people coming from broken homes, uh, single-parent families, divorced families. We see young people who largely will get involved in gangs because there's not only a sense of community there and a sense of power, but a sense of belonging, a sense of feeling like you're, in a, in a way, in a surrogate family. And I wonder if we have come to perhaps, in this day and age, made a mistake by putting so much emphasis on 
in a sense, isolating young people because it's children's church, it's youth ministry, it's young people's outreach, that somehow we want them separate and apart from what the rest of the adults do, that in a sense, have we, rather than embracing them so that they get a sense of being in in that greater community, rather isolated them? Yeah, Craig, I think you're very much on to something that in many ways lines up with our research. Uh-huh. So what, what we've landed on, uh, as kind of in a nutshell, our study, we've landed on six core commitments that we think are essential for the whole church. And I say whole church because not just the children's church, not just the youth ministry, not just an independent young adult ministry. These are six core commitments that are vital for the whole church culture to buy into. And uh, one of those six, in fact, is something very close to what you mentioned. We've come to call it that these churches prioritize young people and their families everywhere. So they're prioritized in every area of the church. And while that sounds uh, intuitive in some ways, or even obvious, what church would say we don't prioritize a younger generation? We found that there's often a strong difference between Uh, the rhetoric or the language churches use, perhaps their intentions to prioritize young people, and uh, what it actually looks like to prioritize young people well in practice. Well, and I guess there's also a difference between prioritizing versus ghettoizing. Very much, and unfortunately, what we've often done, and I want to emphasize that that this has been done out of the best of intentions uh, in so many of our churches. So it's not been done out of neglect. It's not been done out of ill will. It's out of a desire that we want to reach and engage children, teenagers, young adults well. But as you say, we've often segmented them off in their own corner of the church. If, if a church has a large enough budget, perhaps we've built them their own youth room. We've hired them their own staff member as a youth pastor. The problem is that many teenagers, they might go through an average year of their ministry calendar and hardly ever interact with adults who are outside of their age range. Well, the other issue, too, is, and I always thought this, when uh, that part of the service typically very early on came and the children were, quote-unquote, dismissed to head off to their own church, and I thought, I wonder how many of them um, quietly wondered to themselves as they're sitting in youth service, what's going on back in the adult service that the adults don't want them to hear? Uh, I, I mean, you know, there, there's always that sense that, well, you're trying to block me from something or, or, or leave me out. And, uh, you know, children see enough of that when parents say, well, you can only go to certain types of movies. You have to be embedded a certain time. We understand that part of this is good parenting. But part of it, I think, lends, lends itself to that sense of, of being um, not only isolated, but almost and, and again, I have to concur with you at, at this level, Jake. It's not done with malintent, but I think the unfortunate consequence is that some young people, as a result, may feel as if they're being treated like they're second-class citizens. Yeah, and if I can share an example from one church that stood out in this area in our study, it's, it's First Baptist Southgate. They're located in South Los Angeles, and uh, they're a predominantly Latino congregation. Uh, originally, the church was predominantly Spanish-speaking. And what happened in this congregation is the parents, the grandparents, had, had moved to the United States, spoke exclusively Spanish. Well, as they had children, as they had grandchildren, uh, those children and grandchildren were growing up in an English-speaking environment in Los Angeles and spoke almost exclusively English. So as they got a bit older and they were looking at their worship service, the church was faced with this decision of, (laughs) 
we can keep our worship service in Spanish so that the grandparents, the parents understand what's happening, and we could start a separate English ministry somewhere else or on the side or in another part of the building uh, in order to minister to the children, the grandchildren in the church. But as they reflected on that, they just realized that wasn't who God had called them to be as a congregation. And they reflected, if we were to do that, it's only going to drive a wedge between generations. Uh, And so, you know, bless them, the adults, the parents, the grandparents in the church said, even though this is going to cost us something and something very important to us of our language, we are willing to go about the process of integrating young people into our service of letting English be a portion of each of those services. So we saw situations when we visited this church where you had uh, a grandchild and a grandparent, and the grandparent did not understand parts of the service that were being given in English, but was willing uh, to go there and was willing to do that because of his deep love for his grandson. And the church as a whole embraced the young people in that church. So uh, just one example of what that looked like in practice, and often what it costs both generations. But yet that sense of coming together in unity and not driving a wedge, but rather um, embracing uh, is obviously, as you're suggesting, makes a big difference. There's another dynamic to this that I want to talk about after the break, and that is with so much emphasis in our culture on young people and youth, and let's be honest about it, as you get older, don't you look back? Come on now. I mean, I'm Jack Benny's age plus a number of years, and yet there's the sense that, gee, if I could only go back to my 30s, if I could go back to my, well, I won't go any further. We want to recapture that. We have a sense that there's something about vigor and vitality and energy and enthusiasm that that is inherent to, to being younger. And yet with so much emphasis on such things, it seems as if they're at least in areas where the church, rather than embracing that and giving credence to that and acknowledging that, instead somehow demonizes it. We'll talk about that next. Our conversation today with the co-author of Growing Young, Six Essential Strategies to Help Young People Discover and Love Your Church. Jake Mulder, our guest, back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to The Conversation, our visit today with Jake Mulder, co-author of Growing Young, Six Essential Strategies to Help Young People Discover and Love Your Church. One of the things that comes to mind, and I referenced this, Jake, just before the break, um, there's so much about our culture that we have a longing to want to go back and be younger if we're older. There's a lot of celebrating of uh, what it means to be young, and yet there seems to be a sense, and again, this is not in all churches, but in some churches, that we we kind of isolate young people and we, we suggest that, well, they're not ready, they're not mature, and therefore they're not as valued in some ways, and perhaps at least that's the message that young people are receiving as the older adults. What of that notion, and, and is the church missing the boat here? Um, I mean, certainly maturity in Christ is an important thing, but are we missing the boat in some ways? Yeah, yeah, Craig, I really think we are. And two more of the core commitments that we discovered during our research uh, that characterize churches that are able to grow young really speak to that well. One of them, which I can unpack in just a second, uh, is that these churches seem to empathize with today's young people. Uh, And the other one is that these churches fuel a warm sense of community. Uh, 
Uh, so let me go ahead and speak to the idea of empathy first. Uh, what we discovered in these churches is that so often it's easy for a church or, or really any community to have misunderstanding, especially between generations. And in the church today, what that might look like is um, people pointing fingers at millennials and saying, well, millennials today, we all know they're entitled, they're lazy, they don't really want to go to church, they don't really want to follow Christ. And that's not the, that's not the default position that we saw in the churches in our study. Um, if anything, we found that, that the adults in these churches look to these young people and see that they're going through a significant journey, that they're asking questions, just like all of us are, about identity, questions about who, who they are, questions about belonging, where they fit, and questions about purpose, what difference it is that they make. And like I said, all generations today are asking those questions, but for young people today, given how fast the world is changing, given different developmental realities, uh, these questions are really on the forefront of their mind. Well, not only that, but I think there's a way in which we're maybe kind of missing the point here, because oftentimes if you talk to older adults, they'll say that, well, you know, compared to younger generations, you can go back to the great generation that fought World War II and and so on. They say, well, you know, we had a sense of meaning and purpose and drive. These young people today don't care about anything. And yet, if you sit down and talk with them, they're passionate about protecting the planet, dealing with global warming, saving the whales, all of these sort of, uh, for want of a better term, do-good kind of exercises that all go back to the central point of wanting to leave a mark, wanting to leave the place, the planet, better than it was when they found it or inherited it. And I I just have to wonder if if we couch the impact of the gospel in terms of the ability for young people to be able to leave a mark and look at the the absolute indelible mark left by Jesus himself, I think young people could look at this and say, wow, I want to be a world changer, and you've just handed me the keys. Yeah, that's exactly what we found in our research. But the difference that you're talking about, it, it means that in our churches, we have to move past assuming we know where people are at, and not just older people towards younger people. We're also advocating for we need to move past the assumptions that young people have for older people, uh, which that's empathy. It's the ability to step into someone else's shoes and understand where they're coming from. But to move back to something that you said uh, earlier in our conversation, when we have a church that's so separated and segmented by generations and different generations never interact, well, it's hard to practice empathy. It's hard to move to that deeper relational understanding. But, yeah, I think how you phrased it, it that lines up very much with what we found in our research. And, you know, largely it's so sad because uh, there's much that both generations can learn from each other. Older people can learn a lot from younger people, and there's an awful lot, certainly from an experiential standpoint, to be sure, that younger people can learn from older people if we just set aside some of these misconceptions and be able to actually dialogue with each other. Yeah, is it okay if I tell you a short story Please. about uh, Bill Wallace, one of the heroes in our study? So uh, we had visited a congregation that was thriving with younger generations, and we were in a room of 20-year-olds, and we asked them, what is it that you love so much about your church? And one of them mentioned something about the worship service, and a few heads nodded. Another one mentioned something about the mission trips, and a few heads nodded. But then one girl sitting over in the corner said, you know what I love about our church? It's Bill Wallace. And all of a sudden, there was a lot of energy in the room. There was excitement. Every head was nodding. And 20-somethings were saying, you know, I love Bill Wallace, too. He's so much of what makes our church our church. 
they told us how Bill uh, stops them in the hallway, asks them what's happening in their life. He knows their name. He uh, attends sporting events. He attends the dance recitals, other activities of the middle school students and high school students in the church. So uh, we just assumed and we pictured, well, Bill Wallace, he must be the 22-year-old youth pastor in that church who's just got plenty of time on his hands and goes and hangs out at kids' events. And they actually corrected us and said, no, 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 Bill, <laughs> Bill's not 22 years old. Bill is actually 76 years old. Uh, and Bill has made an intentional decision in his retirement years that he is going to invest in the young people in that church. He knows their name. He cares for them. He shows up, and they love Bill Wallace, and they love their church because of the way he invests in them. So one of the stories that we've been telling of, of just something that we, we love about our research, how different generations are being connected, and it's like you said, we think that young people need the church and the church needs young people. And when the two are together, that's a beautiful thing. And, you know, at the end of the day, that story of Bill that you share so wonderfully illustrates that this is not complicated. This is not expensive. It's not complex. Because I know people listening to our conversation today, especially as we began, said, well, I know what you guys are going to talk about. And we, we, we can't afford that kind of money. We can't build that kind of program. We can't hire that kind of talent. But wait a minute, though. Yeah, there might be times and places for programs and approaches, although if you listen to this program with any frequency, you know that largely I don't buy into that. Most importantly, it's the notion that taking the time to care, the ability to do what would appear to be the inconsequential little things in life that has such a tremendous impact, how many of us that have the ability to be another Bill Wallace as Jake just described, if we'd only take the time and make the effort. The book is compelling. There's much more to learn. And so if you've been captivated by our conversation today and you'd like to go deeper and learn more, I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the book, Growing Young, Six Essential Strategies to Help Young People Discover and Love Your Church. It can not only be revitalizing to the young people in your church, but revitalizing to your church overall. The new book, by the way, newly published by Baker Books and available in bookstores throughout the Bay Area. You can also get more information on the web by going to churchesgrowingyoung.org. That's churchesgrowingyoung.org. And our thanks to co-author Jake Mulder for being with us today on this edition of Lifeline. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.